Hello and welcome to Weird Together. I'm Brennan Snore, host of the Ghost Story Guys podcast. I'm Joseph Camo, host of The Cardinal Rule. And this is the show where we celebrate the latest and greatest in independent horror film. We're not critics. We're not experts. We're just weird. Together. Joseph, my friend, we finally managed to get it together. We, we had some, <laughs> some scheduling nonsensory thrown our way. Life happens. But uh, we have finally made it back. And how are you doing? I'm doing well. You know, lots been going on, you know, you know, moved, getting ready for the semester, Wi-Fi issues. Yes. Uh, but I am here. I seem to have a stable Wi-Fi connection and I am ready to talk some horror films. I am too, my friend. I am too. We're actually batch recording today because I'm going to be out going out of town here in about, uh, I guess by yeah, two weeks today, I will be in England which I'm, I'm excited for. I haven't been to the UK, man, since 2013, maybe. It's much more recent than me. I've been there a couple of times uh, and it has been decades, but. Oh, there yeah. you go. Yeah. No, I, uh, my wife, of course, is from the UK. So we're going back. It's, it's her mom's 70th birthday. So we're going to go back and, and celebrate with her family. And also I am going to be attending my first ever convention as a podcast host. Paul and I from the Ghost Story Guys, we have a booth at Paramete in Rugby on the 1st and 2nd, I believe, of September. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited for that. Yeah, so you're, you're kind of going big time, going to a podcaster conference and, you know, going to be hobnobbing with, uh, you know, all the rest of us, huh? Just remember us when you're big time, Brent. No. <laughs> <laughs> I will not do that. <laughs> you can't make me. <laughs> That sounds like a good time. I'm a little jealous, but I hope you enjoy that. Well, Joseph, I, honestly, I look forward to the day when we have a weird together booth somewhere. I believe it will happen. We, we got such a lovely review today on iTunes, I believe it was. And uh, I, I, I don't have it to hand, but thank you so much to whoever left it. Again, that was, was one of the nicest reviews I've ever had in my podcasting career. I, it just meant a lot. Right. No, that was, it was very thoughtful and it was really nice to, to read that, that review just it was definitely very meaningful for me as well yeah it was really really cool and to keep that ball rolling we of course have a film to talk about and that film is older gods older gods tells the story of chris an expectant father who travels to a remote cabin in wales to investigate the apparent suicide of his friend billy like any story that starts with travels to a remote cabin Things go off the rails quickly after Chris discovers Billy had far greater things to worry about than living in Wales. Is there a doomsday cult trying to murder enough people to wake the sleeping god whose dreams create our very existence? If we are in fact the dreams of a greater being, why would those cultists think any of us would survive its waking up any more than the characters of our own dreams do once we open our eyes? Does the existence of QAnon suddenly make more sense? You'll have to watch Older Gods to find out. Alright, so Joseph. Before we can really talk about older gods, we got to do that thing we do, where we acknowledge you never watch a film in a vacuum, you take into a screening all your expectations, all the things that have gone on in a given day, and so before we talk about the film itself, we got to talk about the baggage. All right, Joseph, what, if any, baggage did you have going into older gods? So I didn't have any familiarity with the film or the filmmaker, but the name, the title of the film intrigued me. 
It's not because of the Lovecraftian sort of themes. And I'm not really, I'm not really versed in Lovecraft's lore. You know, obviously I know of Lovecraft and some of the general themes and everyone who knows who Cthulhu is, but it was more just, there's something about, you know, just the idea of the older gods and there's something about deeper, darker secrets in films and things, the unknown that intrigues me is, is like when there's a film like that or story like that, I just wonder is the, the writer or the filmmaker or, or the, whoever the artist is behind that going to come at the story with something new and different or, or, you know, unconventional. There's just something deep and mysterious about the idea of the, of the older gods. Um, so I, I was intrigued at what this film would be and hoped that it would be something I really enjoyed. And well, we'll talk about that the rest of that later. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I believe this is going to be uh, much like play dead. This is going to be a film <laughs> where we are coming at it from very, very different perspectives, hopefully not demonic different perspectives, but <laughs> we shall see if we have to get into a fist fight, we will for you, our <laughs> listeners, we will beat the holy hell out of each other. I mean, I, I will be right no matter what, uh, at least on the subject of demonic and this film, but, uh, right. yeah. Anyways, uh, my baggage going into this film was similar to yours, the, the, although this for me was a last minute pick. And as I've talked about before, I do kind of the, the movie watching. I try to find films for the show and it has to be something that at least one of us likes. You know, we, we don't want to pick things that we think are shit because bagging on stuff isn't fun, especially at the level we're working at. You know, independent filmmakers quite often read their own reviews. And I mean, I know larger filmmakers do too, but I think when you reach that level, you know, the volume is such you're not reading everything. I mean, who knows? Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I don't want some independent filmmaker who made a film for $150,000 to read our, to listen to our show and just hear us crap all over what they tried to do. You know, so we try to pick things that one of us like, and I was kind of coming up short. There wasn't a lot of new stuff coming out. I know Island Escape from, I think it's, I think it's a Dread Central film that was coming out, but it wasn't out yet. So I started at the deep end, Joseph. I, I dived into the mm -hmm. new horror section on Tubi. And let me tell you, when I say I kissed some frogs before I found my prince, did you? I think you told me about a few of those frogs, and I watched a few minutes of them. Yo, you so you and did they see were that indeed one. warty toads. Oh indeed. my! Oh my! Uh, so that was yeah. I, I admittedly I graded this one on a curve after some of the dog shit I had seen, but uh, <laughs> still that that was sort of that was part of it. Um, and also, I'm not. And I talked about this bit on the freeze episode, you know, because I really liked freeze, uh, but. I am really not a huge Lovecraft fan. I used to be, but the older I got, the more I read, the more I kind of thought, yeah, you suck. And, and, and more than anything, I still love some of Lovecraft's ideas. You know, I love the Pantheon of Gods, that idea, but I am annoyed by how much filmmakers lean on their, our assumed, or I guess our assumed knowledge of Lovecraft when they're making a film based on Lovecraft, because so much of it is just kind of that hoary old, like, whoa, you know, when the deep ones arise and they don't establish who the fucking deep ones are. They just expect you to have read a bunch of Lovecraft and go, Oh yeah, I know the deep ones. I got, yeah, I'll get that, which I think is so lazy. And so something, uh, well, I guess that's more for the Toctagon, but that, that was something I was kind of a little bit, I saw older gods and I thought, okay, is this going to be some Lovecraft bullshit? Um, which again, not to say Lovecraft can be bad or it has to be bad when adapted into film. Some of it is quite good. I know there's a, Oh, there's a short film adaptation of Call of Cthulhu. It's actually done as a silent film with um, sort of puppets and things like this. It's very good, uh, you know, given the limitations of it. 
I can't remember who made it, uh, but you know, that can be well done. And, and there's feature from adaptations like Stuart Gordon's Dagon and, and things like this, which, you know, managed to present that fairly well. And Freeze is another example. I quite like Freeze. But I, I did kind of go in with some trepidation thinking that they're just going to be trotting out those hoary old cliches about lizards and making vague allusions to something that the, the script itself never acknowledges and just expects us to have done the homework for any of it to make sense. So I was kind of a little bit uncertain about that. And I would say that really constitutes my baggage. I wasn't familiar with the director, David A. Roberts or Wagyu Films, although I think they had primarily been a commercial outfit before this. So I don't know that they have any other features out. So I think that sums up what I had my head going in. And I guess that means, Joseph, we must follow the primrose path strewn with razor blades to the one place men like us can talk about such things. And that's a talk to God. Welcome to the Toctagon. Two men enter, two men leave. All right, Joseph. Well, based on what you've told me so far, I'm, I'm glad I'm back on the creatine. I need the edge. <laughs> Sounds like here in the Toctagon, blood will be spilled tonight. What did you think of older gods? Well, I mean, it was a competently made film. Let, let's start with that. You know, you've talked about some of the films that you kind of go through before you find the ones that we will end up talking about. And you shared a few of them with me this time, this last week. So I got a little bit of a glimpse and I, and I saw, as we talked about earlier, just how not so great. So to start with, if we're talking about a film on here, there's a certain baseline of competence, at least in our opinion, in the film. So I want to start by saying it, it was not a bad film, but I didn't like it as much as you did. Uh, and there's a couple reasons we'll get into. But I want to start with actually kind of building on something you were talking about just now in terms of the approaches to Lovecraft, because I think I think you really hit on something there. It's a beloved lore, right? And there's there's, you know, obviously films that reference it. But I think what maybe at least from my perspective, what you're talking about in terms of how filmmakers approach Lovecraft as kind of inspiration, what they're doing, it seems, is they're trying to position their film within the Lovecraft universe. They're trying to be part of it. Right. And for me, and you know, I guess this is, you know, easy for me to say as someone who's just not really into the Lovecraft lore, I would much rather see a filmmaker be inspired by Lovecraft and reimagine it and take one of those, whether it be some of the, the, the deep ones or some concept from it and bring it into today and make it something new and even better rather than just try to be, oh, I'm going to create my chapter in the Lovecraft universe. So, I mean, we talked about a film a while back that kind of did that with the Frankenstein, right? Uh, you know, book. Um, you know, the angry black girl and her monster, um, that film was not just another Frankenstein film, it, but it did take that source material and did something really creative with it. And I think that's uh, something that I would rather see from sort of the Lovecraftian inspired filmmakers. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, there's actually a really great film that did that. Uh, it's a Canadian film. As a matter of fact, it's called The Void, directed by Steve Kostansky and I want to say Jeremy Gillespie. It was made by the, the company Astron 6, who's made a lot of really cool horror films. And it, it does that. It, it's you know, very clearly Lovecraftian inspired, but it, it doesn't lean on that and kind of reinterprets it. And honestly, I really felt that older gods managed to do that as well uh, for reasons that you know, we'll talk about in a little bit. But 
one of the things I, I liked is it never specifically references the deep ones. I mean, obviously the idea that Cthulhu is sleeping, you know, it sort of borrows some of those things. You know, the idea that reality is a dream of a, of a greater, fouler being or more frightening being that if enough people become aware of the dream, it will wake up and then that will transform our reality into something probably worse, but, you know, desired by the people who are trying to make it happen. And I thought that was a pretty unique take on Lovecraft because again, one, no one says Cthulhu, no one says Dagon, no one says Deep Ones. They just refer, you know, this cult has, again, the, the dreaming one, that's fine. I mean, the idea that reality is itself a, a collective dream is not, is not Lovecraft, you know? And even later, we see a tentacled monster. And, you know, the obvious thought would be, okay, Cthulhu, but tentacled monsters long predate Lovecraft. I mean, in lore, there's the Tibetan creature Za, which is said to guard the void between, or sorry, guard the gulf between worlds. And that is said to be a many-eyed serpent. So, you know, the serpent, and I mean, of course, going back to the Bible, for Christ's sakes. I mean, that's, you know, so, I mean, the serpent is an old, old nemesis. So I felt like that I'm not, when I saw that, I wasn't going, oh, Jesus, here we go with the octopus. It was more like, oh, what a cool way to tap into a really primeval fear while still sort of, again, hinting enough at Lovecraft that you can use Lovecraft to sell it, which I have to imagine is a big part for these filmmakers. You know, it's, it's hard to market an independent film. And so if you can say, hey, uh, Lovecraft, you guys love that shit, right? Uh, deep ones? Ooh, scary. You know, then that helps with the marketing. And, and I think having some of the images, which those images I thought were some of the best parts of the film. And again, we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. Having those images, I imagine, helped with that. So again, I, I kind of felt like Older Gods in its best moments did that. I feel like it reinterpreted sort of the cult and the, the, the mythos uh, in a way, in a, actually in a more modern way, uh, which again, I really want to get into that, sort of the how I felt they updated it in a way that I think maybe unintentionally ties into some stuff happening in the world right now. Interesting. That's definitely going to be something to talk about. No, that makes sense. I th I, and I, I would, I would agree, you know, kind of within the context of what we're talking about, it does seem like freeze. I think it was, we did, that was the Lovecraft yep. film was much more a direct, right? Lovecraft adaptation. You know, it felt like this felt like it took strokes and elements from it and attempted to kind of, uh, you know, not so directly create the Lovecraft uh, universe as much as be inspired from it. So I, I think, I, I think I agree. I think especially, and maybe, you know, you're just so convincing, uh, but it's, I think you're right. They, they did seem to do that. And, and I think the things that maybe bothered me about the film were not along those lines. And maybe I'll, I'll just kind of jump into probably my biggest gripe with it and is it was so narratively driven, like in terms of just, you know, the, the, the audio from his friend and, and I, I, I understand and respect that, that they, they did some really impressive things with the budget and some of the visuals that you, you mentioned, I, I agree with that. There were some really impressive, uh, you know, effects and images, you know, the acting I thought at points was good at other points was a little like reading from a script, but again, I, I when you're dealing with independent films, you know, the, with the budgets, it's going to be uneven like that. But I, I just, the, the so narratively driven just kind of lost me a little bit. I, I wish, I mean, there were, there were plenty of visual elements. I get that, but it leans so heavily on the narrative stuff and that maybe I, I just, that's just not my favorite. 
That's fair. Yeah, I, I, I can see the, the point of view there. I, I enjoyed it because I like films that have deep lore to them. I love deep lore, but I just want it to be unfolded a little less narratively in exposition. Yeah, that's fair. There was a lot of exposition, Fine. which I, yeah. I think that may have been a function of, uh, of limited resources. I'm not 100% sure, but I know in, in an interview with, with the director, David Roberts, he has said that basically, just as with the other film that we're going to be recording uh, the show for tonight in advance, it was shot during lockdown. It was shot during, during COVID. And so not only were resources limited, but of course, people were limited. And they shot this in a very remote region of Wales, uh, a national park called Snowdonia. So I think, uh, again, access was an issue, funding was an issue. And Roberts has said in the process of, of writing the script, he had to be very mindful of, okay, well, I'm going to have a new character introduce this. And then he realized, ah, I really can't do that. You know, combination again of resources and access. All right, I got to trim it down. You know, I'm going to have to have, instead of multiple characters accomplishing this goal, it's going to have to be one character saying all the things. And so I, I do think that's one of those situations where it was, it was sort of limited by the nature of, of what it was. Because, I mean, you're right, having a character on a screen just sort of na- na- kind of narrating it isn't the most compelling way to experience uh, a film. And again, like we talked about, recognize that the limitations and that this and this filmmaker made a better film than I could ever dream of making myself. I totally acknowledge that. Um, but I just, when I see a filmmaker do something with, the, there are filmmakers who make it work, like Ennis Main, right? That film right. just with, with, with very little dialogue. Yes, there was not such a detailed uh, story that was understood, but there it was there. There was a backstory. Maybe it was some of it was a little for the interpreting to be had, but um, just when you see filmmakers who do pull it off, right? And you know, and Saloon was another film that we watched, and just and then so then those are the ones that are like just the exceptional grade A plus plus, right? Who pulled that off that way. And this is a solid effort, but I just can't help but compare it to some other films we've seen that also with limited resources managed to do something really extraordinary in terms of creating a, a world, creating a lore and doing it without being so narratively driven. So, you know, I, I realize it's maybe a, a, a big ask, but I, there are people who pulled off, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a great comparison would be the audiobook I just finished listening to. So I, I've listened to uh, Oracle by Andrew Piper a little while ago, which is a detective novel uh, written specifically for Audible. So it's, it was only ever meant to be an audiobook, and it was, it was read by Joshua Jackson. And then Andrew was approached by Audible to do a sequel, but they decided to adapt it as a full cast audio drama in the style of like a radio play for our listeners who aren't familiar. Uh, Jesus, I don't know if radio play is going to be any more uh, illustrative than a radio, than audio <laughs> drama, uh, like a movie, but in your ears. <laughs> but what was interesting listening to that, I just finished, just finished that yesterday is obviously I have some experience with this. You know, I've produced some audio dramas for my show, the ghost story guys, you know, I've produced five or six total, uh, I think six total. And then last year I did a limited series called transmissions from the void which were essentially short stories adapted as full cast audio dramas. And one of the things I learned from that is in creating an au- a soundscape and in telling a story in the audio format, 
there are certain things you cannot do because you need to convey too much information in order to tell a particular story. Like, like in a movie, you, you can do so much visually, but with audio, you can't have a, a glance. Someone can't give a knowing glance. Someone can, you can't have a flash of something in the sky, which gives a clue. It's a, it's a different skill set, I guess is what I'm saying. And one of the things that worked against Oracle 2, although I, I did enjoy it, and if, if you have an Audible subscription, I do recommend checking it out. It tried to tell a film story as an audio drama. So there was too much happening. And so there was this tension between the format and the story. If anything, the story needed to be told like a traditional audiobook, the way the first one had, just because there's so much description. And, and eventually they kind of do that a bit. You know, the main character who's again voiced by Joshua Jackson, he starts describing things, which doesn't really make a lot of sense within the context of what's come before, because it's just been purely narrative driven or like, or sorry, dialogue driven up to this point. So again, there's a little bit of an uneasy friction between the format they have to tell it in, which is, you know, they decide we're going to make this a full cast audio drama and the nature of the story they're telling, because it's, it's a bigger story uh, than that canvas I, th I felt could support. It worked in places, but there's some stuff where I thought this is too busy. You're just like, again, I'm, I'm pretty good at that. I'm pretty good at like listening to something and being like, eh, I don't know. And it just felt like, like in trying to paint a picture with audio, it was, there was too much going on. You really need to narrow it down. And I feel like with this film, it may be that the scale of the story they wanted to tell was bigger than the resources they had, you know, and which again is not to excuse the film, you know, like it, you know, that that's not a bulwark against criticism. Just like, I think that's sort of the, the, the issue here is maybe you had a, in order to make the film at the scale you wanted to make it at, you had to turn it into what it is, which is pretty heavy on, on exposition and is, you know, on just him listening to someone talking to him. And, and in fairness, yeah, like watching someone listen to a podcast is, is not super compelling. I, I'm glad you mentioned that because that hit on kind of one of the things that kind of the impressions I had also one of the things that maybe didn't work for me as well. And it did feel like the story was pretty big and grand in nature and the film didn't feel big enough for it. Fair. Yeah. And, and that may be part of my enthusiasm for it. I have a real soft spot for things where it's reach exceeds its grasp. I really okay. respect that. I like the big swing, you know, even if it doesn't connect all the way, I, I just, I respect the shit out of that. And so that might explain some of my enthusiasm, at least for, for older gods. Cause again, I, I quite liked it. I, the first time I watched it, I thought, well, you know, this is good. And then after I chose it, chose it for the show, I, I watched it again. And I, for me, it really kind of really came together on the second watch. And that's where I, I really kind of clicked with it. And before we get to some of the stuff I liked about it, I'm curious to know what some of your other thoughts were. Well, I, I mean, those were kind of the main things, but I did find just in general, kind of the existential dread theme is, is interesting to me. This idea that there's, you know, like, you know, that is there really not even less than nothing out there, but maybe something malevolent that's, that's, you know, going to destroy us or that, you know, that we're, we're really all alone against a, something evil. And it actually, this is a weird connection uh, to make, but like that sort of existential dread actually reminds me of something I felt watching a kind of an obscure film that didn't get a lot of attention, but it was interesting. The fourth kind, maybe we've oh, talked about this before. Yeah, Mila Jovovich. I think we might've kind of talked, talked about it in passing. It wasn't a very well-received film, but it was one of a kind in terms of at least I've never seen another film that that broke the fourth wall the way it did. 
I'm sure there's others that have out there. I just haven't seen. But there's a scene late in the film where supposedly, and if, you know, spoiler alert, if you're going to go back and watch the fourth kind, I'm giving away something. It ties in aliens and ancient Sumerians in some interesting, weird ways, but it's it's vague. So it's not, it, it, I, I think it works reasonably well. But there's a point where uh, uh, a character in the film is almost, for lack of a better term, being possessed by an entity, but it's not a spiritual entity. It's like a, de- uh, not a demonic sort of thing. It's like an alien thing. Yeah. An ancient, you know, this some from some other ancient galactic civilization or whatever is channeling it through it. And there's a point where it says, it says, I am God in a very angry, and it's translated into ancient Sumerian in the, in the, in the sub, uh, the subtitles. And when I watched that, there was something about that, that like, that gave me this. And maybe at that point in time, I had kind of a little bit different view spiritually and such, but, um, this idea, like, no, wait, this idea, what if there's like, there's no God or anything out there, but rather there is this other alien race out there somewhere that's more powerful and that is the, the ultimate power in the universe, at least comparably. And we have no one to protect us from it. And if they come for us, we're screwed. Right. And certainly with the more recent attention on UFOs and aliens and, you know, certainly uh, many people watched the congressional hearings on that, which I thought was kind of interesting as well. You know, there, there are these larger questions of, of, and you know, are we alone? Probably not. And what if, (laughs) if there's someone out there that, that doesn't like us, we're pretty much screwed. Uh, so there's just something about the idea that there's a potentially a bigger malevolent something out there that has it in for us. And if there is nothing benevolent to protect us, there's something very terrifying about that. Oh, yeah. I, I think that's why cosmic horror has been so enduring. I think that's why Lovecraft stuff has, has really kind of sunk its hooks into the popular consciousness the way it has. Is I, I think there is this fear. And part of me wonders there's a little bit about that. Um, we are so afraid of that notion because we've seen as a people what we have done to everything else on this planet because we considered ourselves above them. And that was one of the arguments I think that, um, what's his name? Stephen Hawking has used against sending deep space probes or signals going like, Hey, aliens over here, because his take is, uh, what have we done in our conquest? Nothing great. And if we're, you know, are we sounding the dinner bell? by shouting off into the void, hey, we're over here. And it's a scary thought. I mean, I have a friend who's an incredibly intelligent person. You know, she she lives over in the UK. She's very high functioning. Uh, and when some of these, uh, there was a, a, a UFO sighting, it, I'm pretty sure it's turned out to be a fucking actual weather balloon. But she got a hold of me and she said, dude, I'm scared. What do you, do you think this is a real alien? And I said, and I said, no. And it turned out not to be anything like that. And, and I mean, one, okay, this is a whole other thing from my other show, but folks, I'm gonna put it this way. If they've come all this way, they're not leaving a fucking ship behind. If they've come all this way, whether physically or some other way, they're not all of a sudden going to get shot down by a fucking missile. Like this has been tried before. It's nonsense. No, but she was scared because again, and I, I myself have had nightmares about this. This idea that someone else turns up and treats us the way we've treated everyone else. And that's a frightening thought. And I think because it is so frightening in a fundamental way, you know, we sort of have in a way we keep returning to it, perhaps to try and 
control that fear, but I, I don't know that you can. Although I, I, just to briefly touch, and I think I've talked about this before, there used to be a podcast called Switchblade Sisters. Uh, I was um, hosted by April Wolf, as I remember her name. She's a, she's a screenwriter and I believe director, but either way, extremely funny person. And her show, she would interview, uh, you know, directors, uh, women directors and writers and things like this. And I can't remember which episode it was, but she made this comparison and it was, it just blew my mind. And I realized like, oh wow, what a great analog for this. She likened cosmic horror to being a woman in almost any era in Western history where, you know, you have no control over your ultimate destiny. You are a thing to almost everyone. And you have really just to trust and hope that the people around you are going to be kind and treat you well, but there is an equal chance, possibly a greater chance that they won't. But I gotta be honest with you, when I put myself into the, the mindset of a, like a woman living in the world and how people react, it's, I, I, Jesus, you know, I wouldn't want that, you know? I mean, being soft seems like small comparison uh, or small compensation rather for pain and cruelty and degradation uh, across the generations. Like, no, thank you. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, even just like, like maybe, you know, we're, we're fascinated by things that scare us. That's, I mean, this whole genre of horror films exists at least in part because of that. Right. So there is certainly something about us that wants to explore that fear, whether it's because we want to feel alive, you know, we want to feel that, but like, you know, that's interesting, you know, talking about how, you know, the, the idea like, well, maybe we shouldn't be ringing that dinner bell as you, as you put it, like, like just take a step back and think in just natural on earth kind of human and animal sense. Like if you aren't a, if you are a creature that has potentially weaknesses compared to larger predators that are out there, you probably don't, you want to be quiet and hide. <laughs> Right. Until you know that that creature is not going to harm you. Right. Maybe then you domesticate like a cat or a dog and like to the larger animal. Right. That, oh, OK, they feed me, they give me food and uh, they pet me and they're not so bad. OK, they're OK. Right. Yeah. But until you know, maybe you will hide out a bit. Right. So that that just seems when you take it outside of the context of this sort of, oh, we're going to explore the universe like we're part of the National Fed or the Federation of whatever. Yeah, like Star Trek. Federation yeah, yeah. from Star Trek. Uh, you know, like when you put it in more of a natural, practical uh, kind of context, like, oh, no, we should be a little more low key here. Yeah, well, that's it, right? Because we always think about like any dude who thinks about getting into a fist fight from the position of I'm a badass in his head because in his head, he wins the fight every time he's faster, he's stronger. You know, he's just going to, he's going to pull it out and whoop some ass until he has that fight. And then uh, having been in several fights, you know, it doesn't go that way. Fights are ugly, ugly things. And gumption is not alone enough to see you through it. We think about exploring the cosmos from the same position of power. You know, we think about, well, you know, we're big shit here on earth. And so as we go forward, we are the conquerors. And, and that is, it's a little bit like, what's the word? Uh, protagonist, this whole, like, you know, I am the protagonist of life. So bad things can't happen to me. Uh, and of course not the case. And actually that leads me into two things that I really enjoyed about the film, sort of on a subtextual level. 
Uh, one is, you know, at people, one of the th- challenges we're facing, you know, as we're all hot shit on, we're going out to explore the universe is we've, you know, we've messed up the planet real good. And that bill is now coming due. We are seeing unprecedented upheaval in the environment, in the climate. And it's, you know, it's very bad. And that is, that is something we have to cope with in order to ensure our, our, the survival of our species. And that, you know, that's a great example of how we're, how are we going to fare against a, an entire civilization, you know, from beyond, from anywhere is how, how well can we come together to solve this problem? And there was something that happened in the film, which I don't think was specifically intended to, to talk about this or to address this, but I really found effective and got me thinking. And that is when Chris starts seeing the dead birds fall around him. And you want to talk about dread, the idea of environmental collapse is such a terrifying thought. It is such an upsetting, discomforting thought, this notion that, yeah, all around you, you are in place in, a, in an ecosystem in where you, you don't really understand how it works. You are dependent on it to survive, but you, you, you have very little direct control over it. And all of a sudden it stops, fa- it starts failing. Birds fall from the sky. That's obviously that does, that's not how this works. And that, that is a terrifying thought because it reminds you of how small you are in the grand scheme of things. Dead birds start falling. Is it the end of the world? Who knows? But all I know is this should not be happening. And I found that really effective. And you know, the final shot, of course, after Chris ends up in the hospital is another dead bird. And I I know that, you know, you could obviously sort of take that to mean that the cult is right there and they're going to kill him. But I sort of took that more as a sign, like as a metaphor that it's never over. We're not in control. And and whether or not it's the old one waking up or the sleeping one waking up and, and destroying us or the damage we've done ourselves to the world, we always have this sword hanging over us and you kind of have to learn to live with the dread. I mean, ultimately that's, that's being a person, right? Like you're going to, you're going to die. That's just a guarantee. And we have to live with that dread no matter what. So I I thought that was kind of an effective visual metaphor, uh, intentional or not uh, at the end of the film. You know, some of the things that I thought worked for me, there were some, some, some of the visual effects in terms of uh, and I think you referenced some of these before, probably some of the same ones, but like, like where the, where he's, there's just some quick shots of, I don't know if it's him or someone else with like a floating monolith sort yeah. of kind of up above him. I, you know, and that, and that was, you know, you know, computer generated, but looked really good. And, and then there were certain shots of some of the people he was maybe, hallucinating or visions or whatever that were deceased or but reanimated and what some of that the what the the effects they did with that like their eyes being kind of fogged yeah and things like that were well done visually i mean we've seen a lot of low budget films with really bad effects yeah this was this one had good effects right you know i i thought some of the 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 points where there were just the 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 disembodied voice of the the older God that, you know, speaking whatever language real gravelly was kind of interesting and effective. So there were some elements I liked about it, no doubt. Something that I, I really appreciated about that is they had the older God, the sleeping one speaking, but they just, it was in another language and they subtitled it. And I think that's smart because then you can make the voice as creepy as you want and you don't have to worry about intelligibility. Whereas a little while, years ago, years ago now, not a little while ago, almost 10 years ago now, I saw a film called Lord of Tears at a film festival in Portland. It was, it was actually, it's the Lovecraft Festival, come to think. 
And that film featured this owl god, Moloch, who had a bunch of dialogue, but it was all in English and heavily, heavily altered to the point where you, whenever Moloch was speaking, you couldn't understand a goddamn thing he was saying. Not a god, he may have been reading you a menu from, you know, the (laughs) the local marina for all I knew. And it just really hurt the film. I mean, the film had a lot of issues. Um, I think it's worth, still worth seeing. You can watch it on Plex for free, but you know, it just, it was, it was unintelligible and it really hurt the film. So I think that was smart doing it this way. Yeah, completely agree. And it, yeah, absolutely. And I thought that worked. I don't know the, the whole thing with the cultists kind of harassing him. I don't know that that felt that, that maybe that drug on a little bit much for me. I don't know how you felt about that. I mean, I thought the cultists, I thought that was, they gave, I mean, I guess they were necessary, you know, to give him something to sort of play against. Um, I think the implication of what the cultists represented was more disturbing maybe than what they turned out to be. I don't know. Because the idea is that the number of more people murdered in the name of the sleeping one acts as windows for him into wakefulness. Basically, if we kill enough people, we open this door. And each person we kill is another door to the old one. And this, eventually this will attract his attention to the point where he wakes up. Then everything is reset to zero. And I, I actually found the notion of that really disturbing. You know, this idea of um, open the door, light the way. And this idea that the human bodies are nothing but vessels through which something else is enriched. Which, I mean, there's a whole capitalist thing that we won't get into it. But the idea that the body... Like you're dehumanizing a body and it simply becomes something to butcher. I found that really upsetting. And, and again, whether it went on too long, you could argue. And there's some stuff, you know, where he, he kind of blacks out and his loved ones have gotten these really horrible messages from him. And I I found that all kind of a little bit too disjointed. That didn't work for me because I just thought, okay, well, I I don't know how you come back from that. Like that's the kind of thing you write into a film when, when you, when the guy's not coming home. And then instead they had him come home and I thought, okay, we, I feel like you got to pick one, you know, like, like if he jammed uh, the stick into his neck and died and that's how we stopped them. Like, okay, great. That's cool. Uh, You know, then that may, that works because his, his existence is flamed out. He's burned all his bridges. This is where he, where he winds up. But to do that, which again, to me, didn't make a lot of sense. And then kind of try to come back from it. I thought was, was a weak point. Yeah. And I think disjointed is probably the right word for some of these elements, right? You know, yeah. like the, w- when you have the, the, the mysterious cultists who are kind of harassing him, then you start to expect it to maybe be a little bit like a, a wicker man kind of situation, right? You know, with this, something is going on, they're bigger and it, everyone knows about it except the outsider, right? But it, they didn't really lean it. They didn't really go into that any, it was just, the a handful of mysterious people, maybe the cop police officer was one of them. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. They kind of alluded to that with him asking to see his badge, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, and then, you know, the whole thing. Yeah. About like, okay, Ooh, there's something creepy about your phone and messages. You know, I know you're really, you're really fascinated and kind of freaked out by sort of the doppelganger kind of a thing, right? A bit. So, so what was there elements of that going on or did he actually send these messages to someone? Uh, uh, but the, they didn't, they don't lean into that any, right? It's just a, this mysterious piece out there that's thrown out there that they could have done more with. And, 
and there's all these disjointed things and that maybe that it's just all part of this cacophony of things that are trying to pull him into madness maybe, but it just, I don't know. Yeah. It didn't, the threads didn't quite tie together as well as I would have liked. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that. And the cultist thing that it, it worked and it didn't for me. I think you're right. I think it, the film establishes at first, it's a small sort of ice series of isolated cells that are doing this. Um, but you're right. Kind of having them all turn up the way they did does make it seem like they're hinting at a larger, a larger conspiracy. But I think it, it, if they had just, if they hew to the idea of like the small groups, I think that really works because it, it, this was sort of the, the larger point I wanted to talk about. Uh, and, and we're, we're sort of winding down here, folks. So we're going to, we're going to bring it in for a landing before too long. But I think it's, it's, it's a really timely theme. This idea that a handful of people, extremists represent a danger to all of us because the way the film describes these people is that, you know, they're a small group of people who are dissatisfied with their station. And so rather than improve it, they want to blow it all up. They want to awake the sleeping one and then we'll start over again. And it's, it's really interesting because so many people who talk like this, who have this notion of we're going to burn it all down and start again. It's a little like the guy who gets into a fight thinking, well, I'm, I'm the protagonist. I'm going to win. These guys always think they're going to come out on top that, you know, we're going to, burn it all down and we're going to be running the show, but probably you're not just because you awake the old one or whatever. doesn't mean he's going to let you run shit. Once, once he kind of turns it over, like if there is truly a being who is dreaming our existence, they are incomprehensible to us and we are nothing to them. So to think that he would then start looking at your resume on indeed and going, Oh yeah, no, I, I want you to run my new world order. That's hubris beyond comprehension. And there is a quote that I, again, I thought was really interesting and really kind of spoke to this. One of the cultists said, no one can be insignificant if no one exists. And that's just not true. I mean, okay, that's technically true. Yeah. If no one exists, but that's stupid because what is insignificance? You are not as important as you thought you should be. So everyone else suffers. And I mean, is there any better way to describe the incel movement? Well, let me just kind of build on that. And I, you know, like the people who are drawn to those kinds of things, I think of like QAnon. They're not necessarily, how can I say this? They're not necessarily the best and brightest that our species has to offer, right? So like if some higher form really were going to consider the possibility, oh, these beings have awoken me. Well, let's go ahead and, you know, gather the best and brightest. It's not going to be... <laughs> The people, you know, in movies, brilliant, genius visionaries are drawn to these kinds of things. In real life, brilliant visionary geniuses make lots of money and don't worry themselves with conspiracies and old gods or whatever. So like, like even if, if, if that being were willing to pluck some of the, the exceptionals, or whatever from, from humankind, it would not be the people who are drawn to these kinds of movements. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. That's it guys. I got bad news for yeah. you. <laughs> no, it's, it's, right. you're not the ones. Thanks, but we're not picking you. Yeah. Right. Cthulhu's picking everyone for kickball and uh, yeah, I think we're good. I think we got enough people. We're shorthanded, <laughs> but we don't need you guys. That's fine. Go play for Cthulhu's the other team. Kickball team. Yeah. 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 Cthulhu's. That is the most random obscure reference I think I've heard since 
the last time we recorded one of these. <laughs> uh, just to sort of put a button on that that conversation. I, again, I, like we live in a society where the most successful people are not always the best and brightest. Like I, I will grant you that. Mm-hmm. You know, there are right. extraordinarily talented people laboring in obscurity, uh, possibly who have movie podcasts. Who knows? But. Right, right. You know, I'm just I'm not anyone in particular. I'm not thinking of anyone. I'm just saying. Just throwing that out. I'm there. just saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that does not mean that the people who that does not automatically mean if you are laboring in obscurity that you are great and your greatness has just been denied you because of whatever bullshit you're willing to blame, whether it's woke politics or women or whatever. Again, the system is geared towards certain people, and it is geared towards the success of of the wealthy and the advantaged. Absolutely. But that, that does not then, by the transitive property, make you the disadvantaged person great simply by virtue of being disadvantaged. And again, I think that's what people who are trying to, who have these, these thoughts, they fail to realize. Yes, the wealthiest people are not always the greatest. The, I do think the people who have the most to offer are accomplishing something. It's just not always monetary, right? You know, there are people who are investing in the lives of other people, right? They're, they're people who are serving other people, teaching other people um, there, but they are not the person who's digging in some web, you know, internet kind of what rabbit hole and finding some sort of truth. Like the, the greatest people I've met are busy ab- about the business of helping other people. Yeah. Yeah. If your quest for greatness involves the Tor browser, I have bad news for you. <laughs> right. All right, Joseph, any final thoughts on older gods? I mean, as much as I had some critiques, like I said, it was a competent film. There were some things I liked about it, but there were some things that, you know, maybe, and maybe part of it was going into it. I was hopeful, just something about it based on the title, you know, maybe gave me some hope that it'd be something I really like about it. And there was some, but you know, it didn't work for me as well as it did for you. No, that's fair. Um, Oh, one last thing I wanted to point out. I read, I don't know if this is accurate because I haven't seen anything where David, David Roberts himself comments on it, but I read that those effect shots of the, the man of Chris in the field with the obelisk above him and then with the creature rising in the background, I read those are practical. Interesting. Yeah. The, the, um, the guy in this, the monster is a guy in a suit with a plate, you know, sort of a combination of, of, uh, basically like a visual effect, but, a a practical visual effect, not a CG visual effect. Again, don't know if that's true. David Roberts, if you're listening, let us know. Yeah, that that would I would be very impressed by that. Yeah. Uh, my only other thought is I just wanted to make special mention of the performance, uh, or sorry, not performance. I wanted to make special mention of the art done for William's notes or Billy's notes. Uh, there were mm-hmm. some really cool, creepy sketches in there. Those were apparently all done by Andy Sexton, who is the I think the art director on the film. Uh, and there were places where I thought they looked a little bit like the art of uh, either Marius Lewandowski or Zetislaw Bakinski. They're both Polish artists. Then they both do, well, they're both gone now, but uh, are passed on, but they both do really disturbing art that sort of depicts human life on a much smaller scale versus these sort of larger, older, more frightening things. Both of them are brilliant. I mean, I would, I would argue Bakinski is much more disturbing. Uh, Lewandowski was more of, I think, a commercial artist. He did album covers for bands like Bell Witch. But both really, really creepy. And again, I thought that was something that the notes really pulled off was this sort of very disturbing uh, artistic style. So I just wanted to to give a special mention to that. 
All right. And I, I, while I don't have anything straight up for the boost, I kind of don't want to do that segment because it takes up too much time. I will say, if you enjoyed Older Gods, I want to recommend The Void, which we mentioned earlier. Again, directed by Stephen Kostansky and Jeremy Gillespie. It's a really great film shot, I believe, in Edmonton, Alberta, which uh, is a nice little city. The film Come True, which it may even be something we end up doing on the show, I don't know. Also shot in Edmonton. Very creepy, very much plays with, it, with, with reality. And uh, just because thematically it, it bears the same name, Dead Birds, which is a, a little watched horror western. You can get it on Prime, I believe. It's got a lot of folks you'll recognize in it. And it's just a solid, again, horror western that somehow escaped notice its first time around. So if you enjoyed Older Gods, those are some other independent films for you to check out. Joseph, my friend, where can everyone find you online? Well, you can find me on Twitter. I refuse to call it by the other name at this point. At J-O-K-O-M-O-13, Jokomo13. And uh, if you're into NFL football, you can find my other work at The Cardinal Rule on YouTube. I do Arizona Cardinals content there. All right. I am Largely the Truth on Instagram, Threads, and Blue Sky. I'm no longer active on Twitter. My account is still there, but I, I, don't, I won't be tweeting anymore until, until there is a change of leadership. Because it, uh, there is an article in the Beaverton, which is a Canadian satire site recently, that referred to it as a, f- uh, a failing cesspool owned by a pathetic bigot. And I can't think of a better description for Twitter or what has become of Twitter, I'll say. But I am on, again, Instagram threads and Blue Sky as largely the truth. You can find my podcast, The Ghost Story Guys, co-hosted with Paul Bestel of Mysteries and Monsters, everywhere. Fine podcasts live. And I have a new website. So if you want to learn more about me, you can find me at brennanstore.com. That's S-T-O-R-R.com or at largelythetruth.com. All music on this show is composed and performed by The Revenants. The Revenants are a project of Boston-based musician Elliot Wilder. Our theme song is Rest in Peace from the album Music from Big Beige. You can find that and all of Elliot's work by searching for The Revenants wherever you stream your music or by heading to therevenants1.bandcamp.com. Thanks so much for joining us, folks. Until next time, remember, we're weird. And you're weird. So why not be weird together?